Um, the fact of the matter is, if I'm going to pick a macronutrient that I'm going to eat as a middle-aged guy who wants to keep muscle, because I told my wife when we were getting married, sweetheart, I'm going to be bald in a few years, but I'm always going to have muscle. <laughs> you know, it's part of my marriage contract for yeah. me. I, I'm going to pick protein. You're listening to The Tactical Kitchen. I'm Melody Barron, certified chef and nutritional therapy practitioner. And I'm Steve Barron's 21-year special operations veteran and certified personal trainer. Together, we are here to share our experience on the ketogenic lifestyle. Don't forget our disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only and should not be considered a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We're not doctors, and we don't play them on the internet. Now, let's get ready to chew the fat. Mmm, bacon. Welcome to the Tactical Kitchen Show. Today is episode 10, and you're going to want to hang on to your hat for this one. We're going to interview Dr. Benjamin Bickman. And Dr. Bickman is a professor at Brigham Young University, where he runs a lab called the Laboratory of Obesity and and Metabolism. That's a mouthful. I barely got it out. So what they're doing right now is they're exploring the contrasting roles of insulin and ketones. So you know this was a very interesting subject. And they're talking about how those two things are key drivers in our metabolic functions. I loved this conversation so much, I've had to go back and listen to it a couple of times. He puts out a lot of really good information, especially talking about insulin and how that relates to chronic disease. Absolutely. And one thing we do touch on that is a hot topic in the keto community right now is that consumption of protein. So you might have heard the very opening clip. You're going to want to hang on and hear the rest of that about why you might want to have that added protein and who might want to watch that added protein. It's so interesting. Now, we're not going to talk about ourselves a lot right now. We want to get to the interview. But if you're interested, go to YouTube, check out our video where we're chronicling what we're doing for the week. Yeah. Oh, Keto Train, in case you guys haven't been missing it, there it is. So yeah, hit up our YouTube channel, see what we've been doing for the week. But right now, let's go listen to Dr. Benjamin Bickman. So welcome to the Tactical Kitchen. Today we have Dr. Benjamin Bickman, and he is joining us to talk about something really important, and that is that whole insulin-glucagon ratio and all about protein. This is a subject we really wanted to tackle because he covers something that, that we've been concerned about in the past since everybody knows we've done a carnivore diet is protein and how that affects you and affects ketosis. Right. So Dr. Benjamin Bickman, welcome to the podcast. Could you tell us a little bit about your background? You bet. Yeah. First of all, please call me Ben. Okay, I am, Ben. <laughs> I'm from a very small town in Alberta, Canada, population about a thousand people. And so my really big family um, was, you know, a significant, you know, half the town almost, it felt like. Um, uh, Nevertheless, I I grew up in Alberta. I'm born and raised. I then went on a mission for my church in Russia for a couple years, learned how to speak Russian fluently, and I've been able to keep that up. That was 20 years ago, though. And so in those those intervening 20 years, I got a few degrees, um, all within the realm of uh, physiology, the body, the way the body works. And it was during the course of my PhD and then my, my fellowship, where I really started diving into insulin more specifically and the role of insulin in chronic diseases. At the time, I was focusing just on type 2 diabetes. And then since I had started my own lab, when I got hired as a faculty member here at BYU, 
that's when I started really becoming or appreciating more and becoming more aware of the role of insulin in, in virtually every chronic disease. And, and that's, uh, so my, my home with regards to research is insulin. And then that has started kind of stemming into this research into ketones. And your uh, degree, I noticed, was actually in bioenergetics. And I have to admit, I had to look that up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is just a big, sexy word for studying energy in organisms, which, which meant studying things like obesity and diabetes, which are... Um, I don't want to say energy disorders, but are consequences of the body changing the way it uses energy. Wow. So Steve noticed when he was doing a little bit of research, because we did our research on you, mm-hmm. <laughs> that one of your very first degrees was in, was it? Uh, so, so a bachelor's in exercise science and yeah. then a master's in exercise uh, physiology. What started you down that path? Right. I went, when I got... Um, when I started my academic, uh, my undergraduate degree, I had started in engineering because I wanted to be an architect. And just very quickly, the engineering classes kind of took the fun out of architecture for me. But I, <laughs> and so then I went through this little crisis, which was really amplified when I got married um, as a student, as an undergraduate. And, and then the idea of becoming, uh, of being a husband, but someday being a father and um, being a provider for the family as a 24 year old or, uh, yeah, at the time that just, that weight just settled on my shoulders. And, <laughs> and it was just, it was my sort of first moment, my first real crisis in life. But, and it really was at the time, it seemed just overwhelming this idea of, I need to pick a degree where I can get a job and provide for my family someday. And of course we didn't have a baby. It would be you know, years before we had a baby, but even still I was playing the long game, the the long game. And I, I thought, all right, what is something I just, I'm really interested in. And that is something I'm going to be really good at. And, and then I'll, I'll have a job. That was sort of my thinking. And, and I'd always been fascinated in not exercise per se, but how the body responds and adapts to certain stimuli exercise being one of them. And so that was just a, a neat way to, to apply that. And I'm very grateful for that background because it gave me a very applied background, appreciating the body from head to toe. And, and that allowed me to keep that larger perspective as I started getting deeper in the course of my PhD and my fellowship, which became progressively more biochemistry than it was physiology. And so I had gone from studying the body's systems, the organ systems, to studying the functions of processes within the individual cell. And, and I, to this day, I, I don't regret those academic decisions because of, I think in a way it's allowed me to come to the conclusions on, on low carb and the benefits of a low carb diet that I wouldn't have otherwise. If I had just been a biochemist from beginning to end, I don't know that I would have been able to step out and say, okay, wait a minute. We, when we, when we f- put saturated fat onto cells in a, in a little dish, in a little culture dish, or we are infusing saturated fat into an animal or even a human, is that the same thing as a human eating saturated fat? And that question was the beginning of, of me starting to challenge everything I thought I knew and then just sort of relearning some things 
for myself, which was, I'm only going to look at data. I'm not going to look at a textbook or listen to any other so-called expert. I'm a scientist. I can read all these articles, every paper that's been published. And that, that was the, that was my journey uh, to appreciating low carb. But again, it really was uh, through the lens of what is the best way to control insulin? Because I was learning more and more how relevant insulin was. And, and that was relevant to saturated fats, but the short and skinny of it was uh, the physiologist in me was sort of pounding, uh, you know, on, on the windows to, to be heard. And that was to say, Ben, um, treating a cell with saturated fat is not the same as an individual eating it. And, and of course it isn't. And, and that's not a comparable response at all. Anyway, that's a really yeah. long question, a really long answer to your question. Simply, I started very applied exercise physiology, and then I got progressively deeper. Um, and, and that's where I'm now. And that that's uh, where I think a lot of us start. We start just, it, we don't start just all of a sudden interested in low carb. Most of us came to this through a long process. So as you were studying exercise science and those things, and then moved on to where you are now, at what point did you look at it and say, the textbooks are wrong. Like you said, you didn't look at textbooks any longer. At what point, though, did you really say, what I'm being taught is wrong or it's yeah. not correct? Yeah, well, I'd say it, was, it wasn't that quick. Um, I'd say my first, um, my first suspicion that textbooks are not the ideal source of all knowledge came as a master's student uh, when the first articles were published that fat tissue in the body can create and release inflammatory hormones called cytokines. That was the beginning because that was real-time brand new observations that it was so new that it hadn't even hit the textbooks yet. And it would be years before that would become part of textbook general information that, that fat tissue can become inflamed and release these um, pro-inflammatory molecules that can go all over the body. And then I was only interested in the time because those same inflammatory signals can cause insulin resistance. So that was the touchstone for me. But that was the beginning of me wondering, is a textbook the best way to learn something? And then it was really hit home when I started teaching my class as a professor seven years ago. I received the assignment when I got hired to teach a class called pathophysiology, which is just a big term for the sick body. So the students have already, by the time they come to this class, they will have already learned the physiology. So what the heart is like when it's working right, how the lungs work, how the liver works, the bones, whatever it is. And then they come to pathophysiology and then we say, what is the liver looking like or acting like when it's not working well? Or what's the brain acting like when it's not working well? What's the problem? What can you do about it? <clears throat> and that was where I found the textbook because the textbook mentioned the, the textbook we had been using when I got hired, uh, it had like one page about insulin resistance or something. And I thought that was just such a travesty. For example, if you're talking to someone about hypertension, elevated blood pressure and insulin resistance isn't, part of that conversation, you're not really talking about hypertension. And that's just, that was sort of the lowest hanging fruit. When I saw that the textbook didn't even have that connection, I thought, I'm not going to have my students look at this junk. It's a 400 bloody or $200 textbook. And, and so when I started putting my lectures together, I, I really just, I only used primary sources. So just peer reviewed um, manuscripts. And so whenever I have something that I worry the students may think is a little controversial, um, then I, I always am including the references, 
you know, and so if I've had students in the past raise their hands and say, Hey, Dr. Bickman, you know, you're showing, you're showing studies that a low carb diet is very effective at improving type two diabetes or blood pressure, whatever, whatever have you. And, and I'll say, well, that's, that thanks for telling me you can't disagree with data. If you don't like the studies that I've shown you here, you can find studies that refute it, but don't bring opinions to facts. Don't, that's, this is not a, this is not an accurate comparison, but that's one of the things I try to impress upon my students, the necessity of understanding that you can't just disagree with data. You can criticize the techniques. We can criticize the model that's been used. But in the end, if that's the only um, data available, well, then that is what it is. And you have to wait for data to come out to refute it. But in the realm of low carb, <clears throat> we have somewhere in the, in the 70s, you know, dozens of articles that have been published clinically, clinical trials, I mean, that compare low fat, low carb. People can do those comparisons and look at the real data that have come out of those studies and then come to whatever conclusions they'd like. But you at least can't say, I don't agree with the data. You can say that's an interesting finding. I wonder, are there other data of a comparable model or better experimentally that refute it? And anyway, it's one of the things that, in fact, it's one of the things that's been frustrating throughout my journey, becoming a, a scientist and a voice advocating low carb. It's when people don't look at the data, when they're just basing, they're basing their opinions on dogma, and that's just not the way to do it. And that's, that's where we've been for so long, and it's just, it's opinion-based. And, you know, as we're talking about this, I think that maybe someone listening to this might not fully understand what insulin is. So since you are absolutely an expert on insulin, could you maybe give a, a good, well, as simplistic maybe as it mm -hmm. could be for someone to understand what insulin is actually doing in the body? Yeah, 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 that's a good question. Uh, insulin comes from the uh, little bunch of cells in the pancreas, a gland that's kind of tucked underneath the stomach. Um, and uh, insulin classically is only is considered a hormone that regulates blood glucose or blood sugar levels. And that, that is not an incorrect definition. It absolutely does that. It is, however, selling insulin very short because insulin does... Uh, it's probably safe for me to say hundreds of, of reactions are turned on or turned off in a cell, maybe even thousands, to be honest. We're learning more all the time, but insulin affects every cell in the body from the top of the head to the bottom of our feet. Every cell has insulin receptors and, and it's just, it's turning things on and turning things off. But again, uh, the main uh, role, a main role, I'll say that, a main role of insulin is that as glucose levels climb in the wake of a meal, a starchy or sugary meal, insulin, uh, that can be dangerous. Uh, if, if glucose levels are too elevated for too long, that can result in the, the kidney not being able to reabsorb glucose and it just spills the glucose into the urine and the person can have something called a non-ketotic coma where they go into a coma because they lose so much blood volume that they don't have enough blood pressure in the system to keep the brain perfused. You know, if you're going to pump fluid right. up, you need pressure to get the blood up into the brain. And if you don't have enough blood pressure, well, then the brain doesn't get the blood and it just turns off. So, so it's dangerous. My point being to have 
glucose elevated for too long. So thank heavens, we have insulin to come in and save the day. So as glucose is climbing, 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 insulin will come in and push the glucose out of the blood into tissues like muscle and fat. And then, the, then, then as the blood glucose levels come back down to normal, then insulin comes back down. And in that respect, when we start talking about insulin resistance, now we've got a situation where those cells don't take in that insulin anymore. Or the, they glu- the glucose. The glucose any longer. Yeah, yeah. That's, but mind you, that's only part of it, Melody. And that's, that's, the, that's the obvious relevance where we say, if you're insulin resistant, you are going to have a harder time moving glucose. And that's absolutely true. And that's, when that starts to happen, um, that's when we, unfortunately, the tragedy of conventional medicine is it's only when that starts to happen that we now clinically care about it. So unfortunately, if, if someone is eating a cruddy, cruddy diet, you know, their, their glucose levels are always coming up, coming up, but, but insulin is there to push them back down. But over time, as the body just keeps seeing more and more insulin, um, they be- it becomes more and more insulin resistant. So insulin starts to climb up over the years, but it's enough to keep glucose in control. Even though it's resistant, the body can still make enough. And then eventually insulin hits a roof the, the pancreas can't release anymore. And at that point only, now glucose levels start to climb. We just can't keep glucose in control anymore. And it's only at that point when we clinically actually say, ah, oh, now you have a problem. Because we look at diabetes as a glucose disease, when in reality, it's an insulin disease. And by looking at it as an insulin disease, we not only detect it decades potentially before the glucose ever changes, but it also improves the way we treat it. We, we, we quit trying to fix the glucose and we instead fix the insulin. And now we resolve the problem. Now, one of the things I heard you talk about in a, uh, a previous uh, podcast was how insulin slows down mitochondrial uncoupling. Yeah, that's, that's my data. Those are from our own lab, from my own lab. So, so um, that's something that, that you, you've discovered and talked about. And how does that relate to a, the normal person? Yeah, so that, that question, when we first asked that question, my students and I, it was in the wake of... Well, looking at a lot of data, frankly, um, da- in fact, data as early as early 1900s, when these famous scientists, um, Jocelyn and Benedict, they noted uh, in, in Boston, they noted that um, type 1 diabetics untreated with you know, no insulin, they had really high metabolic rates. And then in the intervening decades, we learned that when you begin treating type 1 and type 2 diabetics with insulin, their metabolic rate goes down. So that was one thing, seeing that when insulin started to come up, metabolic rate went down. And then we looked at that also in the context of varying macronutrients in human diets, where like at David Ludwig's lab at Harvard, um, where they found that if humans are on very low carbohydrate diets, even if they're eating the same amount of calories, their metabolic rate is higher when insulin was down and ketones were up. So the first question we asked was simply, what is insulin and ketones doing to the rate at which mitochondria are working. Now, but before I answer that, by way of background, people may remember from just sort of freshman biology or uh, high school, whatever class in high school they had, the mitochondria are um, structures within every cell, every cell except red blood cells, actually. So most every cell um, where it, it's creating energy for the cell to use. It's, it's taking in glucose and fatty acids and even ketones and then turning that, breaking it down, burning it, and, and giving energy for the cell to work and get stuff done. When 
when I'm mitochondrial, you guys tell me, you pull me back up if we start to go too deep. So <laughs> within, within every mitochondria or mitochondrion, <clears throat> there's a capacity to be very tightly coupled or very loosely coupled or uncoupled. If it's very tightly coupled, that means the mitochondrion is only breaking down nutrients to the degree that it needs that for energy. In other words, it's basically saying mitochondrion, we need this much amount of energy. So only break down this much amount of the nutrients to give us that much energy. So that process of breaking down energy or food energy to give energy to the body is just like a one-to-one. We're, we're doing it just as much as we need it. So that's very tightly coupled. And that is a situation that is prevalent in fat tissue because it is very efficient. It ensures that the cell is not wasting energy. And fat tissue, of course, exists to store energy. So normal fat tissue does not want to waste energy. So it's very tightly coupled. In contrast, mitochondria that are very uncoupled, this is when you now have a mitochondrion that's taking in glucose and fat for fuel and just burning it, not because it needs energy for the cell and it doesn't give the cell that chemical energy to allow the cell to work. It just wastes that energy as heat. And so that's very uncoupled. And so an uncoupled mitochondrion will use more energy very quickly, but not for any purpose. It's just, so it's wasteful. It's very inefficient. Now that doesn't mean that it's bad, but can you see the difference though? One of the things that's amusing for me is I'll hear a radio ad about take this supplement and lose weight. It helps your mitochondria be more efficient. And yet that's the kiss of death. And that just means your (laughs) metabolic rate is going to come down. That's the worst thing you want. You actually want your mitochondria, at least in your fat tissue, to be less efficient. And that is what's happening in this state of uncoupling. So back to the question that we asked. Firstly, the first question that we asked and we just published it a couple months ago was, uh, what is insulin doing the mitochondrial uncoupling? And we found that um, it was making the mitochondria more tightly coupled. So this version, as I was describing it. So it was telling the mitochondria, don't waste any energy, only use what you have to use to help the cell survive. Now, by way of even more background, all humans have white fat and brown fat. And most of the fat we have, if we can pinch and jiggle it, wherever it may be, that's white fat, that's subcutaneous or the fat just beneath the skin or the visceral fat that's you know, around our liver, around our kidneys, deeper in our organs. Uh, that is white adipose tissue. And it's white because it has very little mitochondria in it. And the mitochondria that are there are very tightly coupled. They're storage mode mitochondria. And then we have a little bit of brown fat. Mostly we have it right up here in this clavicle, clavicular area. Um, and then generally a little bit throughout the thoracic cavity along the rib cage. And that could be just to warm blood as it's going to the brain. Because you think if we were all cold, if we went up to my native um, Canada and we were cold, in order to warm the rest of the body, we would shiver. And the muscles, that, that um, friction would warm the body up. But there's no way to shiver up here, right? And so right. if you have that brown adipose, it can warm the blood as it's coming up. Nevertheless, we know that our subcutaneous fat, this fat at our, uh, under, beneath our skin, it's white fat, but it has the capacity to shift its mitochondrial profile and go from very tightly coupled to very, well, less coupled or more uncoupled and act more like the brown fat, which we have typically just stored here. And so we found that insulin is particularly relevant at the brown fat depots, that it's taking these very uncoupled mitochondria 
and making them coupled. So it's turning, making them behave like white adipose tissue. And that could explain some of the reason why insulin, as, as we start to infuse a body with insulin, metabolic rate goes down significantly. And it may be, in addition to any other reason, that it's just reducing the metabolic rate of fat tissue, making all of the fat in the body act like this very tightly coupled white fat um, as opposed, and then ketones, we haven't published this yet. We have more human studies that we're doing now. Um, ketones appear to be doing the opposite, where it's turning the white fat and making all of this subcutaneous white fat act more like brown fat. And in reference to people, most people um, who come to a ketogenic or a low carb diet might be looking to lose that fat, right? Yep. So if you're talking about insulin and controlling insulin, then what you're, what you're basically saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that that white fat can start to uh, act as that brown fat and be used as energy more efficiently or more well, less efficiently, less, effi- less, less efficiently, efficiently but, but quickly. Yep. That's right. Yeah. So that's the, ben- that appears to be one of the benefits to explain why could someone adopt a low carb diet, still be eating uh, a lot of calories, maybe not even calorie restricting, and, and still be losing weight, part of the explanation could be that they are, in fact, just using energy at a higher rate than they were before um, because of this less efficient, more uncoupled adip- um, mitochondria in their fat tissue. Yeah, and that's a great point because everybody, you hear all over the place, people talking about, I'm going to increase my, my resting metabolic rate. It increases my, you know, my metabolism. Yep. You know, and a lot of things they do, like you said, you know, becoming more efficient actually reduces that instead of being less efficient. So that's that's right. Yeah. And in a way that's in a way that I confess that is maybe just a little kind of semantics. Yeah. It's efficient or not. But I I think it's just sort of fun that we we get it so wrong. You know, we 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 think efficiency is, is a good thing. But in this case, in our environment of such caloric excess, it's not a good thing. Right. We don't want to efficiently store fat. We don't That's want to. Right. Do that. No, no. And, and fat is stubborn, you know, especially if you're eating, uh, eating a diet that does cause you to have high insulin levels. We all know how hard that it is to lose that little bit of fat or that, you know, especially yep. when you start getting down to where you're toward people are towards their goal. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to lose that sometimes. Uh, this also makes me think of the point a lot of people will bring to us is that <laughs> when they start a ketogenic diet, all of a sudden we'll get calls from people and they'll be like, am I supposed to be sweating profusely? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so that could be part of it. Um, they are really experiencing the increased heat um, that you're getting from the, the uncoupled mitochondria. So whenever I hear people talking about that, that sort of the heat intolerance where they're walking into a room and they just can't take their jacket off fast enough, that, but they didn't have that before. They're kicking the blankets off at night and they never used to do that before. I think that's uncoupled mitochondria. Oh, that's so fascinating because that is something that is such a great scientific explanation for what we see people actually experience and they don't know how to explain it. They're like, all of a sudden I'm just so hot. Yeah. And that's so interesting. And now as we we move on to something that you spoke about at Low Carb Breckenridge, which was that insulin to glucagon ratio. Yeah. Now, this to me is one of the hot topics within the ketogenic community because this hasn't been talked about a whole lot 
In fact, I think you're the first person I've heard. Someone talked about it before me. I don't know about it. So I didn't mean to steal anyone's thunder. Um, Now, now, full disclosure, it was a topic 40 or 50 years ago, um, but not in the context necessarily of low-carb diets and the the benefits. So, yeah, I'm I'm thrilled that there's been interest in that because it was more of a – a subject of interest for me or passion almost. Whereas last year's low carb Breckenridge, which was the very first time I'd ever talked in the low carb community. That was my first steps in the low carb community. It was just my own research that we just got done talking about uncoupling and insulin and ketones in, in mitochondria. And that was fun. Um, and, and I'm, I was really welcome that opportunity, but this time when I got the invitation again, I didn't have any new data to show. And so I thought, well, I want to talk about something else then. And as I had become more familiar with the low-carb community, I was I was thinking of the themes of conversations that I would hear people talk about. And one of them was this fear of protein. And because all oh, well, protein can increase your uh, glucose levels. In fact, a lot of the way people even talk about protein and low-carb, I don't think is correct, where they're fearing gluconeogenesis. And, yeah. and I think that's that's not the right thing to fear. If you're afraid of anything, you're fearing the insulin spike, not the gluconeogenesis because, and those are not the same thing. The liver making glucose is an absolutely essential function during a low carb diet. It has to happen or else we die from hypoglycemia. So nevertheless, um, as I was thinking about a topic, it it was this, I, I concluded I'd speak about the relevance of dietary protein. And, uh, that's when I, wanted to, that's what started, took me down and looking at, yep, yeah. a protein can affect insulin, but, but does it? And that was part of me, once again, challenging dogma because I had always believed the same thing. Yeah, of course it does. Protein increases insulin. And then it was just a couple old gems of manuscripts from, in, from the 1970s. And, and it was finding this, it was just luck that they also happen to have data in low carb states. And, or let alone just fasted states, as opposed to conventional high carb fed individuals. And the short and skinny of it was that, yes, if you're eating a high carbohydrate diet and you're adding protein to that, that will give you a very big insulin effect. That is true. And, and, and so looking at protein as something that elicits, that is something that is insulinogenic, that's correct because for most people, that's exactly what's happening. <clears throat> but then when we look at it in the context where um, carbohydrate consumption is lower than normal, and thus the liver must be making glucose through gluconeogenesis. And that is that appears to be the, the critical distinction. Does the liver need to make glucose or does it not need to make glucose? If it needs to make glucose, like in a fasted state or a low-carb state, there is no insulin spike or it is insignificant. It's just this insubstantial bump, if anything, um, from the protein that is consumed and could it maybe be offset by the significant bump in glucagon, which appears to challenge insulin's anabolic effects in places like the fat tissue where insulin wants to promote fat cell growth, glucagon wants to promote fat cell shrinking. Oh, we like glucagon. Yeah, yeah that's right. Thank heavens. Where you freak people out right here is when people hear this, and we get this in the, in the athletic or bodybuilder environment, where if you eat a low-carb, high-fat diet, you're not going to be able to build muscle because – Insulin, like you said, is anabolic. Glucagon is catabolic. But yeah, but yeah, out that it's it's anabolic in the fat cells. Yeah, that's right. And there are no glucagon receptors or uh, in, in muscle cells. Or if there are, they are 
inconsequential. There's so few. And so that's an excellent point. Someone would think, well, I don't want glucon, glucagon because then I'm too catabolic. And, and, and of course, muscle building is decidedly an anabolic event. Um, but whereas insulin is anabolic at both fat cells and muscle cells, glucagon is, as stated, only catabolic at fat cells, no effect at muscle cells. Ah, so, uh, that's nature at its best right there. <laughs> yeah. and, and that's great news for everybody in the low-carb environment because um, how would you explain now when you talk to somebody and you try to explain how you can build muscle on a ketogenic, low-carb, high-fat diet, the process is when they argue that you have to have insulin for muscle growth. Yeah, I would, I would say, firstly, um, it is possible. We've seen that. Uh, now, I don't know of a manuscript that's published, so as a scientist, I need to be careful. I've not seen a study that looks at people in and out of ketogenic diets. There's a rodent study that founds, finds that muscle, synthesis, muscle protein synthesis is uncompromised, but I don't know of a human correlate there. Um, but there are tens of thousands of anecdotes um, on um, Facebook and web pages like the Keto Gains group on Facebook. I mean, they have just like, literally tens of thousands of, of instances of people getting substantial anabolic gains at muscle despite low carb. So I would say that it's, it appears to be absolutely possible. Um, I, when I got hired here at BYU, I hadn't been weightlifting in years and I was – um, I wasn't very low carb at the time, um, but I was able to gain some mass. And I, when I went really low carb, it did not slow my muscle gains during that period of time. Um, so I've seen the same thing. Uh, but I would say, so one, it appears to be possible. Two, <clears throat> there, is, there are still, um, insulin is still in the body. It is still anabolic, even in its normal f- levels. But we have to remember that there are other hormones that are capable of inducing um, lean mass growth um, independent of insulin, um, or I could say that complement and work with insulin to do it. But it's not all about insulin. While it does appear to be all about insulin in a fat cell, telling a fat cell to grow, whether someone's talking about a cortisol problem or a thyroid problem, it all comes back to insulin. Uh, in fact, I have a graduate class that I teach. I actually have my students when we talk about fat tissue physiology, I, I give them a week. I say, fine, take a week and try to find an instance in human physiology of someone uh, gaining fat mass where insulin isn't elevated and thus could be the explanation. And we've yet to find one. So uh, while the fat cell appears to have its uh, anabolism very um, linked to insulin being elevated, that is not the case with muscle cells. We know for a fact there are alternative signals, IGF, growth hormone, insulin, and probably others that I'm not thinking of at the moment that can also elicit a growth signal at muscle cells. Yeah. So you also talked about uh, in that relationship between insulin and glucagon, how that when you eat uh, fat, glucagon increases but not insulin so in that case if you're we're talking about you know muscle growth and fat storage if you're not having that bump in insulin a lot of people still worry about calories right and that they're getting fat on a ketogenic diet even though they're you know maybe not bumping their insulin up so what is your take on that because a lot we get that question a lot Am I going yeah. to be able to overeat and gain fat on a so, huge diet? Yeah, so I think uh, 
I don't know. First of all, I don't know studies that really confirm that really settle that um, answer that question explicitly, but I can speculate that calorie number will matter. However, um, we can't ignore the relevance of hormones. And in my, in my, my conclusion based on the data is that hormones are the most important step and then calorie number is the second step or the second most important variable, I should say, not step, but most important variable is hormones, um, insulin in particular being low. And then second one is what are calories? Um, what are the numbers? And I would, it is, it is, uh, if someone's eating pure, that's the, the problem is when I was showing you those data, it's based on the idea that it's pro it's total, just fat. Mm-hmm. Um, where if someone were eating pure fat um, as a fuel, then there is in fact no insulin bump. But of course, that's not what happens. Well, in nature, usually it's it's fat and protein that come together predominantly. You think of any real sort of source of of protein, and that's it's just protein and fat. Although you can have carbohydrate sources that can have fat too, but that's almost always where we have intervened. If it's a carbohydrate as a food, it's almost nothing but carbohydrate. You think of any fruit and vegetable. Now there are the fatty fruits, of course, like olives, avocados, coconuts, but almost everything else is just pure starch, pure carbohydrate. When you look at protein, now it's protein and fat coming together um, almost in every instance. Um, but nevertheless, so <clears throat> that's true that there is no insulin effect of, of um, pure fat alone. And that may be why someone can be consuming higher than expected levels of calories and still losing weight. However, there must be a reckoning. There's only so much energy the body can choose to not store. And so if someone's eating too much fat, whatever that would be for them, and I can't give you a number, the possibility then isn't necessarily that they're storing it because if insulin is at basal fasting levels, you wouldn't store it. But the question could be, are they eating so much fat that they're using all the fat they're eating for fuel and not actually using any of their own fat for fuel? That's a very viable concern and one that may apply to people that are just adding oil to everything. But even then, that was part of why I wanted to talk about protein because of this kind of bizarre eating pattern I started seeing in people that were so determined to stay in ketosis and so afraid of protein that it made them afraid of real food. I know a woman who two out of her three meals a day will do nothing but four. It was, it was like four tablespoons of MCT oil oh um, in a drink. And at first my first thought was, how are you not making a mess in your pants? Oh yeah. That's hour? disaster. Pants. That, oh, it's ridiculous. But like, apparently she just adapted like, a testament to how well you can adapt to that stuff. But, and I'm not, I'm not even, um, poo-pooing the idea of, of a benefit of MCT oil or just ketones themselves. Pun intended. There, there, yeah, yeah. There can be a role for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. But we can't, we can't let our interest in ketosis shift our focus away from being metabolically healthy. And, and those, don't, those are not necessarily the same thing. You can have someone who's drinking ketones or so much MCT that they're in ketosis all the time, even when they're eating a cinnamon roll. You know, that's not going right. to, that doesn't work. But, oh, hey, I'm in ketosis. Yeah, you are, but that's artificial. And now, again, I'm not 
negating, I'm not trying to say there's no benefit to exogenous ketones or MCT. There, there could absolutely be a benefit there. I know for me personally, this sounds bizarre. I have really sensitive skin. I often get something called perioral dermatitis, where I just get these little red bumps around my, 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 my mouth and up on my eyes as well. And I've found that if I'm in ketosis, even when I've gotten there through MCT, I just have much better skin. Um, I don't have the little angry red bumps that I sometimes get on my forehead or like I said, around my mouth. I keep my skin just much cleaner. And, and that, that may, be, may be totally wrong. It may be an artifact of something else that's going on. Um, but nevertheless, my point being, uh, I, had, I didn't like the trend I was seeing where people were just drinking oil. And, and that, and, and they were saying, I, Hey, I'm a low carb. I'm drinking oil. And I'm thinking, oh man, yeah, that's not the way we're built. And, and there can be a role for that. Sure. Um, there can be a benefit to that as one moment in a day. Um, but if that's become the theme of how they're eating, then that's a person who's not healthy. Sure. They'll be lean, but they're not going to be healthy. There's a difference. We can't, we can't start to confuse the two. No, that, that when we first started doing a low carb ketogenic diet and I started listening to podcasts and researching, that was one of the first themes that I came across was gluconeogenesis and the fear of it Yeah, and how that if I ate too much protein, and I remember hearing this, it's basically the same as if I ate a chocolate cake. And that is well, absolutely, that is know, not justified to say that kind of comment is not justified. I mean, now could we, I mean, if, if we all right now started drinking like soy protein, you know, just pure, I say soy just because soy is so junky. I don't want to say, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to say whey protein, but the same thing could happen with whey. Um, if we just started drinking protein, um, we're just going to make a lot of glucose out of that, but, but only to suit the amount of glucose we need. Um, the fact of the matter is, if I'm going to pick a macronutrient that I'm going to eat as a middle-aged guy who wants to keep muscle, because I told my wife when we were getting married, sweetheart, I'm going to be bald in a few years, but I'm always going to have muscle. <laughs> you know, it's part of my marriage contract. For yes. me, I, I'm going to pick protein. As, as controversial as that may seem in, in low-carb circles, um, because I'm going to be low-carb, and that is my absolute priority number one, it is make sure that I'm being smart with my starches. Then I don't care about my protein consumption. Um, it, it does not fear me. Now, I also don't fear fat, which means I, I really relish adding fat and not avoiding fat in any meal. But to, to try to throw protein under the bus with a comment saying that it's comparable to, to eating a slice of chocolate cake, that is, that is not justified. Uh, I, 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 but that, again, that was my – one of the reasons was me being on the rooftop shouting to people – we need to change the way we look at protein, especially in older people where yeah. if we have older people that are cutting their protein because they're afraid it's comparable to eating chocolate cake, the rate at which they're going to be losing their muscle is just going to accelerate. And we don't want that. No, we don't. And, and we had this concern when we went into our carnivore experiment. We talked about it before about do we, did we think we would absorb, you know, take in too much protein that we yeah. out of ketosis. So we tested during our, you know, three months of, what'd you find? It, we actually went up. Yeah. Our, our, we use keto mojo to check our mm -hmm. keto yeah. levels and blood sugar. So blood sugar was very stable. Ketones were like, like, I mean, 
They were more than 2. normal. 2.3, 3.0. Yeah, I mean, see, and that, uh, no, that was another reason I, I wanted to talk about this. It's because as more and more people are shifting towards a little more carnivore version of this, you can't say you're afraid of protein if you're eating meat. Because meat, even the fattest cuts of meat are still mostly protein. Maybe just all but a few exceptions, but it is overwhelmingly protein. And so if someone's staying in ketosis and they're eating a hamburger that's 80% protein, in fact, that's a fatty piece of hamburger if it's 80% protein. But even still, if you're staying in ketosis, you can't say that protein is going to kick you out of ketosis. It is acid and unjustified. Well, you know, it's just like... my, my thought is that I fear that our community of low-carb, ketogenic uh, people could go down the same dogma road that yep. we went down with cholesterol, where we say, that's not, we look at someone and say, you're eating that steak, that's not uh, ketogenic, because you don't have enough fat and you have too much protein. Yep. They're restricting their carbs and they're staying in ketosis. So, you know, my thought is if I'm in ketosis and I can prove it through my blood ketone levels, then you can't tell me I'm not eating a ketogenic diet. That's right. And you can't say that insulin went up a lot. You can't because if insulin goes up, it will absolutely smash down on the liver's producing ketones. Insulin will immediately inhibit ketogenesis and you'd be out of ketosis in 30 minutes or so, depending on how quickly it would take you to use your circulating ketones. But it's not, it, that is proof in the pudding, so to speak, that if, if you stay in ketosis after eating that steak, done. We, we've now resolved the problem in saying, well, I can't eat protein because that's going to increase my insulin. If it did, it didn't do it enough to inhibit ketogenesis, and that's something that insulin does very well. So uh, now now we're talking about ketosis. We want to kind of uh, move forward in the conversation of talking about ketones and how ketones improve cellular function, Uh, the processes that that happens in and and how people should be, uh, you know, trying to be in uh, ketogenesis so they can have that improved cellular function. Just like you had with your skin. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So there are, so my skin observation is not published, total anecdote, but there are, so if we look at the available data, uh, we could pick with, we could start with the area where it's the strongest data, which is that ketones improve neuron function. And so we see this in in countless manuscripts and not countless, I'm exaggerating in multiple, (laughs) multiple human. I don't like to exaggerate as a scientist. Yeah, yeah. We in, in in numerous manuscripts we see that ketones improve mental function in humans. So cognition gets better. So a, a, a memory gets better. You can have people reading words and they can recall their words better when when they're in ketosis. They can learn new things better, new skills better when they're in ketosis. This is published human data. So the brain appears to improve, independent of brain improved brain function. We know that ketones inhibit inflammation in the body. There's a couple very good articles published on that in very good journals. We know that ketones reduce oxidative stress. In fact, I once heard one of those scientists say um, ketones are a clean burning fuel. So when you compare when the mitochondria is, say, oxidizing glucose, it's producing more reactive oxygen species or oxidative stress than when it's oxidizing ketones. So it's it's less oxidative stress. We've published that. In fact, when we looked at how ketones affect beta cells, and we have a paper we're just about to publish from muscle cells, that ketones reduce 
oxidative stress from muscle cells as well. And that paper's not published though. In fact, I have it on my desktop to work on later today. Um, we also know, so I mentioned inflammation, oxidative stress, improved brain function. Um, uh, if there's another one, I can't remember at the moment, but those are all published articles. So we know that the ketones are doing something um, at, the, at the cells that other nutrients, that fatty acids aren't doing, that glucose isn't doing, that amino acids aren't doing. So it's some unique effect to ketones. And the tragedy of that, someone could be hearing this and nodding along thinking, oh, that's great. Ketones are cool. But we need to appreciate for a moment, especially the evidence of ketones improving brain function, which is the strongest area of evidence of ketones doing anything. And, and it's beyond just cognition. Ketones um, resolve migraines. Ketones um, improve uh, schizophrenia, for heaven's sakes. I mean, there are multiple manuscripts that uh, looking across a variety of neurological disorders, um, the tragedy then is how rare a person's brain is actually using ketones for fuel. And in this culture where everyone's eating a high carb diet and they're being told that it's better to eat six times a day than two or three times a day, you know, the tragedy is they wake up from this, you know, let's maybe they, I don't know, when would someone have had their last night snack, maybe eight or nine o'clock, heaven forbid, they eat something and then they're eating something again, you know, it's seven o'clock. So it's not been say 12 hours and insulin has come down. Ketones are maybe just about to start to want to be produced. And then they eat that bowl of cereal or those two bagels or, or three or whatever they're going right. to eat for breakfast. And that bumps the insulin through the roof. Ketones just get, they plummet. And then they're right back into feeding the brain pure glucose. And then let's say after a couple hours, you know, the glucose has come down two hours or so, the insulin's starting to come down two or three hours later. Oh, but it's time to have a snack. And so, you know, they have their mid-morning snack and, oh, we've just shifted it all again. And then we do that at lunch and then the mid-afternoon snack and we do it again. Anyway, you have people whose brains are never seeing a single hint of ketones and they're never really getting that cognitive benefit. Yeah, we, we see that all the time and we completely agree. And, and that's how I ate for, for years. I did, um, you know, I did triathlons. So I was always got a carb up before you run, before yep. you bike. So I was on that roller coaster as well. And it wasn't until after I retired from the military and kind of slowed down a little bit that I noticed the impact on my metabolism when I wasn't crushing it all day long. I had, you know, metabolic issues. Mm -hmm. And also, as you mentioned with skin, we notice the same thing. We can stay out in the sun longer and we, d we don't get sunburned. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something I I'm, I'm very aware of. Um, uh, yeah. My sensitivity, I burn, I mean, I burn faster than my little kids do for heaven's sakes. It's embarrassing. And I have the perfectly wrong complexion for it, but I, I don't, I've not timed it, but I, I, I think I've seen the same where I appear to be a little more resistant to uh, with sun exposure than normally. And that could be, that could be a function of um, maybe ketones. That could be uh, an unknown variable, but there is more support for the idea that it depends on the composition of the fat you're eating. And one of the benefits of someone going low carb in my experience is that they eat more real food. When yeah. you stop eating carbohydrates as your primary macronutrient, you pretty much stop eating out of bags and boxes with barcodes. And that means the fat that you're getting is real fat, which is going to be more saturated fat and less of the seed oils, the omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids, which as we eat 
can become enriched in the skin and get more readily oxidized from UV exposure than saturated fats. And that's one of the great ironies and tragedies of modern conventional um, nutritional thinking is that we could be vilifying the one fat that is the healthiest by telling people to eat less saturated fat. We may be accelerating atherosclerosis. We may be accelerating heart disease because when we look at fatty acids, the more saturated the fat is, the more stable it is, the less likely it is to get oxidized and thus damaged. And it's these seed oils that are so readily oxidized um, that can cause something like a sunburn or uh, an atherosclerotic plaque. And they're, they're oxidized from the very beginning before yeah. you ever even put it in your body. They're already, already oxidized. Yeah. Rancid. Yep. That's right. We have and, to put in, we have to put in chemicals to mask the stench as they go rancid. Absolutely. And, and I always tell people, if you want to understand the fats that you're eating, just go Google canola oil production and yep, watch yep. a YouTube video and see what goes into that. And then think about, you know, when you cook your bacon and the fat renders off of it and the process of getting that fat, it's a little different. Oh, heavens. Yes. <laughs> yeah. One step as opposed to countless steps, no chemicals yeah. as opposed to countless chemicals. Yeah. So. It's just, you know, if you have to bleach your oil or use a hexane solvent to make it not stink, then yep. that's, you know, that's probably not something you want to put in your body. Well, that's one of the biggest marketing, you know, successes ever was calling all that vegetable oil. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and masking it and kind of giving it that idea of, well, vegetables are healthy. So this must be too. In fact, yeah. one of the most enjoyable conversations, well, first of all, anyone listening to this who wanted to know more, more about omega-6 fats, they need to find anything from a guy named Tucker Goodrich. He's really become a self-taught expert in the relevance of um, omega-6 um, polyunsaturated fatty acids. But also um, there is this really interesting two podcast episodes from a guy named Malcolm Gladwell. And he's this very well-known author. Yeah. So he yeah. had these two, two interview or two um, podcast sessions. He did one was looking at the change in McDonald's French fries and finding out that it was because they stopped frying them in saturated fats and started trying to use all these vegetable oils. And then the follow-up was looking at the, uh, in a way, the consequences of shifting our dietary fat in some, one of the most well-done studies ever in one of the most damning studies of the benefits of unsaturated fat. And in contrast, indicating the benefits of saturated fat was the Minnesota coronary experiment. And this was a very well-controlled study decades ago where they took people that lived in institutions. So they had perfect control over their diets and they put one group on a high saturated fat diet, one group on a high seed oil or vegetable oil diet. And they just looked, the only data that had ever been published from that study was this group on the seed oils had lower cholesterol levels. That was the outcome done. That's what they published. But then a couple of years ago, a guy from the NIH and Malcolm Gladwell goes through this story. It's wonderful. And he finds that, and I'd seen the study, but I didn't know the history of it. And so Malcolm Gladwell's podcast interview was fascinating. But nevertheless, the point being, the group that was eating more saturated fat had higher cancer, heart disease, death. They were dying more than the group eating the saturated fat. And, and yet they stopped the story at the cholesterol because the rest of it was just too inconvenient. Right. Well, you know, you talk about the, and we've talked about this before, when we start learning this history, when we go back and we look at, you know, the, the food industry back in the 80s where we grew up. And I always go back to my, my childhood favorite uh, treat was ding-dongs. 
<laughs> and at some point, ding dongs went from being really yummy to being absolutely horrible. <laughs> and, and it is the same time that all the food industry started switching from saturated fat to all these unsaturated. <sighs> they ruined. They ruined it. Oh, talk about making me angry. You ruined my childhood, you know, treat. Yeah, but hey, but it makes it easier to go low carb. <laughs> it absolutely <laughs> yeah, it does. does. You're right. You're not, you're not craving your ding-dongs as often. <laughs> exactly. So you mentioned something in your, um, in your presentation at Low Carb Breckenridge. Um, you threw something on the screen that I just laughed so hard because you were like, I wonder what food would be full of protein, oh, yeah, yeah. full of fat, and would increase ketogenesis. And, you know, you threw the steak up there because it's the combination of the carnitine. Yeah, that's right. Protein and, and that fat yeah. increases ketogenesis. And I thought that was so great because carnitine, that, the base of it, carne. Meat. Yeah, right. Yeah, good point. Well, you know, I never uh, thought about that. I wonder if that's how it got its name. That is a really good point. Uh, you know, most Latin words or Greek words do come from those base, those, those bases. Right. That's a really good point. I never thought about it, but you're right. You don't get it from, you don't get it from white meat, uh, for example. Um, the carnitine is, it, that's a red meat um, component. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that was, that, that was uh, meant to be a little cheeky. So I'm glad you laughed, but uh, it was also my sincere realization as I was looking at what I just put together, fat, protein, carnitine, I thought, that's a steak. I mean, that's a ribeye. Yeah, I've just described beef, basically. And, and, and because it was such an obvious moment for me of, wow, how, how obvious is this, um, that, that meat is, is a key here. But it also helped me check the box of one of the purposes of that talk, which was telling people, look, stop drinking oil and start eating real food. Absolutely. If you're going to do this, if you're going to go low carb, really enjoy the benefit where if you're eating meat, I mean, you're basically in eggs, certainly you're going to get pretty much, I say pretty much just in the event, someone knows something I don't know, but you're going to get pretty much everything you need for survival where you're done. You're checking every box, you know, I'm not going to be deficient in anything, but you can't say the same thing. If you go vegan, for example, no, you, you can't. I mean, at that point, and I don't mean for my biases to be so obvious. So I try to be dispassionate here and just talk like a scientist. We know you will get serious deficiencies um, going vegan. And, and so I say that's a privilege of the elite where you have to, one, know what you're lacking nutritionally. You have to be that mindful. That's not, I won't say smart, but that informed, that educated to know I'm going to be deficient in these things. And then you have to be able to afford to get all of those things or you just eat meat. I mean, that hit home this semester. I had a young woman come up to me in the class after, after at the end of one of the classes and I had 140 students in my class. Um, but I, I memorized every name, mind you, I, I make that point of doing that. So it feels very personal, but she comes up after this darling gal. And she said, Dr. Bickman, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm always falling asleep. And I said, Hey, I don't care. Uh, you're, you're paying for this education. You fall asleep if you want. But, but I said, are you doing all right? You know, is there a reason you're so tired? Oh, I have anemia. And I said, oh, well, what, you know, and there can be all kinds of anemias, right? And she, and I said, well, what's anything in particular? Well, and then she said iron deficiency. And I'm just waiting for her to finish that. And she said, well, I'm, I'm a vegan. And so I thought you, you, you have a double whammy here, sweetheart. You're a young menstruating woman and you're a vegan. 
Well, and I, I take iron, but you know, I don't know how much to take. I'm like, yeah, but that's, you're not going to get that iron. And I said, Hey, um, there's an easy solution here. And she just starts laughing. Cause she knows what I'm going to say. Not that I'm pounding the pulpit up the pine, pounding the podium and saying, Hey, we got to eat meat. I never, I don't say that. Um, but I do show my students when we talk about blood disorders, I show them the data of a problem with not eating meat, that you have an increased risk of um, iron deficiency anemias and B12, a pernicious anemia as well. When we talk about fertility disorders, I show them studies from men that when you cut out meat from a man's diet, his sperm quality goes down and his testosterone goes down. And so, you know, that's, that's not conducive to, um, you know, keeping the race going. So that to me, that's, there's no, that, that maybe is the easiest example of the fact that we are not, I'm vegan animal. We're not animals. We're not herbivores. I'm meant to eat nothing but plants because if so, why would men have such disastrous consequences to their fertility? It, that would not work. Makes no sense. If you can't reproduce, no then your species wouldn't survive. That's right. Well, great. Well, I think we've talked about a lot, covered some really good subjects. We want to be respectful of your time and not keep you too long. So do you have anything else? Well, I, well I, let's I, not end. Let's not end talking about sperm please listen <laughs> so so i did notice something and this is this is kind of funny i noticed that you are a member of several different organizations and associations but primarily i noticed that you're a member of the american diabetes association yeah so how's that working out yeah well um i'm glad for that membership um and i'm also a member of the american heart association so these are two governing bodies in fact that was part of me saying i'm not going to let the experts dictate what i think anymore um so despite me being a member of those associations that was part of me just concluding or just saying i'm i'm fed up these people making these statements representing this association that i'm a part of they're no more qualified than i am to, right. to, to know what the data are. And, and so that was when I said, I'm not going to rely on anyone else's come. That was part of me saying, I'm not going to rely on them. They're no more qualified than me. And, and, and I'm not, I'm no more qualified than you guys. The only difference is for me as a scientist, I get paid to ask questions. And because I'm affiliated with the university, I have access to all the articles. So I can just read all the published manuscripts. But more and more, a person can just go on to Google Scholar. And that's one of the things I love about the low-carb community. This is a group of very well-informed people. Now, you could actually say the same thing about vegans, too. They, they are very well-informed. They have really done their homework. Um, we've, we, we're coming to different conclusions. But this is a very well-informed community. And and I think it's wonderful where someone can go to Google Scholar and learn how to get savvy with how they're doing their searches. And one of the first things, mind you, I'll give some, anyone listening any advice. A high fat diet is not the same thing as a low carb diet. That was one of the lessons I had to learn as I started educating myself. I would look at high fat diets and that would just be a diet that was 40% fat, but still 50% carbohydrate. You know, that is not the same as a low carb diet. And, and so, and nevertheless, as people get savvy with how to use search tools um, and, and find research, uh, they can be as informed, if not more informed, uh, than the other peop- other experts. And I, I will agree, this is a community of people who do their research and they, you know, more and more as it, it's starting to 
be easier to find these uh, studies for, especially people like us who get asked all the time, well, where's the study? You know, that's the first question. You can go to the doctor and get prescribed a statin and no one says, well, where's the study? No, I know. That's right. But you can tell them they could eat ribeye three times a day if they wanted. And they're like, well, where's the study? In fact... In fact, there is one. So (laughs) there was a study where they took men and put them on a diet of 50% saturated fat. So of all their calories, 50% of it was coming from saturated fat, which meant they were predominantly eating eggs and steak. And they lost more weight than the other group. Their blood lipids got better than the other group. And that's been done. Now, one thing that I, in fact, this is maybe just personal almost. I've had people at my institution get upset with me and the data that I show my students. And one of the areas where I got attacked was this idea that the no more than 10% of all calories should come from saturated fat. And my response was, because that is absolutely nutritional guideline. No more than 10% of calories should come from saturated fat. And my very genuine response to this um, accusation of teaching opinion, not science and whatever um, and I'm not qualified to teach this. My response to that one bullet was, please show me a study that that, indic- that that guideline was based on. Because I'm now going to attach this study, this study, and this study, three studies that I can think of off the top of my head right now that show people going above. In fact, four, Women's Health Initiative is another one, um, they, uh, where saturated fat was higher than that. And it, the outcomes were either better or no different. So that 10% number, where did that come from? That's not yeah. based on science. Dogma, right? Yes, that's right. Absolutely. Well, this has been such a pleasure talking to you and we will definitely want to have you back to talk about this more um, and some more of your research because it sounds like you are going to be just a complete asset to this community and what you're doing. But could you let people know where to find you, how maybe if they uh, want to find out more, listen to some of your research presentations or find out what you're doing? Yep. Just give an idea. Yeah, yeah. So I have, um, when I first started with Low Carb Breckenridge last year, I got into social media for the first time. And the purpose of that has been to simply disseminate information. So every time, whenever there's a new study published, anything within the realm of low carb, um, ketones, insulin resistance, it pretty much is those three themes. I am always sharing the newest um, data. Uh, and, and I do that through Twitter and Instagram. And my, my handle there is Ben Bickman, PhD. And there's no C in Bickman. So it's just Ben, then B-I-K-M-A-N, PhD. That's Instagram and Twitter. And then on Facebook, I just have a public profile page, just Benjamin Bickman. Um, but in, in every instance, it's just me sharing the latest research uh, and then a little sort of comment about it, a few sentences explaining the relevance of it. Yeah, I definitely picked you up on Twitter because I started going through all your stuff and I was like, wow, this is all gold right yeah. here. Yeah, it's, and that it gives us, it helps us remember um, just how much of a foundation we have. And, and that, to me, as a scientist and, and a, a, you know, a, a professional who's in this space, it is the perfect defense where I know everything. When we've been talking throughout this last hour, 
I know I'm not just pulling these things out of my pocket. I've seen the studies. Um, in some instances, I did the experiments and published the papers, but it is data, and that is the perfect defense against dogma, certainly. So if you could leave us with one thing, I did have one final question. When we talk about the fear of protein and, the, and not fearing that, the one question that I failed to ask earlier is, is there an instance or a person type that should be concerned with their protein consumption? Um, that's a good question. <clears throat> an easy answer because conventional medicine would support this, is that if someone has kidney problems, for example, that's a reason to be wary of protein. But that's a pretty explicit disease state. And in fact, it's not known whether that's actually true or not. Um, but if someone is starting in, in a low-carb diet and wants to lose weight, they need to be careful that they're not overdoing it on protein. I would say that because if they're still... Um, struggling with this underlying hyperglycemia, you know, they're a type two diabetic and their glucose levels are elevated. Um, that could result in a higher than normal spike of the insulin because there's no need for gluconeogenesis because glucose is still just so darn high. So someone who's starting low carb for the purpose of weight loss and they're coming at it from a diabetic, a type two diabetic state, there might be a state where too much protein is, is maybe going to go too far. But even then, if the protein is real food, it's no problem. In that case, I'd say it's pretty much just people who want to be drinking protein shakes. And I don't have anything against a protein shake as long as the person knows what's in it. And so if, if I'm going to get protein from a shake, it's just that I have a bin at home of pure whey. It's not flavored. It's not sweetened. It's pure whey. And then I have my own little home brew mix that I make where we have, I have um, some cocoa powder, some powdered fat. I put powdered egg, uh, powdered egg, where's the yellow stripe? Powdered uh, egg. Yeah. And, then, and then my whey, and I just keep some of these in my office where if I didn't have time to get some hard boiled eggs or some beef or some something in the morning for lunch, then I have my pure whey, my pure fat, like a powdered cream, powdered egg. Um, and that ends up being my shake. But nevertheless, uh, someone can overdo it on drinking protein. Um, despite me just showing you mine, uh, it is something that people can go, can go too far with, especially these protein shakes that are out there nowadays are so often filled with junk. But more and more, I find that as the, as consumers are getting more savvy, um, manufacturers are also um, kind of stepping up and making more and more viable options for protein powder. But even still, it's never going to be as good as the real thing, like just eating a piece of meat. Having some meat. Eat real food. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That, that really is a, a conclusion um, that I see often and I uh, endorse. It is just eat real food. And even doing that, a person's going to tend to just go lower carbs than they were before. And that's a great step in the right direction. It is. And I, you know, as we've talked this, like you said, through this hour, I, I find that our theme is really the same. Don't fear protein, eat real food. And that whole thing of like, am I going to eat too many calories or am I going to have to, am I going to put on fat by eating too many calories on a ketogenic diet? I think all of that comes with time when you have to really start listening to your body. And the way you really start hearing it is by eating real food. 
And then you start getting the proper signaling, that proper signal of leptin, guerlain, and all those, all those different hormones start working together. And I I think it just takes time. uh, Yeah. A person needs to be patient with themselves. It it is so, it's so unfortunate when I see someone getting frustrated with their efforts for weight loss. And, and just to prove a point, I ask them, um, how long did it take you to gain these 50 pounds? And I say, oh, 10 years. And I'll say, well, give yourself 10 years to lose it. Right. It won't take nearly that long, but if it took you 10 years to get there, it, you're being a little unfair to think that it should be happening in 10 weeks. Um, but yeah, just eating real food. And for me, I control my appetite best when I remember how uncomfortable it is when my belly is bursting. And so it's just such a deeply uncomfortable feeling that that is as I'm getting older and a little more disciplined with myself and my, my habits, I just ask myself, Ben, you're good. You've eaten enough. You've nourished your body. And if you keep going, you're going to have that really uncomfortable distended stomach, which is, you know, that really full feeling. And there's a difference between being satisfied and then being full or stuffed, you know, you know, and, and that to me is my motivator. I don't like it when my, when I'm feeling so big after all the food and that, that alone, I'm not counting any calories. I and mean, what a tedious thing to do. Um, yeah, it is. It's tedious. Well, that's, that's one of the things you have to learn is people sometimes can't differentiate between full and yeah. full, like distended. And my, my body is satisfied. So. That's right. Yep. And, and the nice thing about being fat adapted, which happens low carb, um, you, you have energy. And all the time, you can look at food differently, which is, um, am I going to have enough energy? Um, I mean, people define energy in a lot of ways. And usually they mean, is my brain kind of turned on enough? That's what they mean by energy. And that's, of course, not accurate at all. Energy is, is there enough substance in my body to fuel my body? And when you're fat adapted and you're used to using fat for fuel, then your own fat becomes such a good source of fuel that you're never really deficient. That's not a reason not to eat, of course, but it is, hey, look, if I haven't eaten in four hours, I'm not going to die. I'm using my own fat for fuel. I'm just fine. Well, it's a reason to not eat the birthday cake at the office or not eat the pizza that somebody ordered in. That's the reason you can look at that and comfortably say, I don't have to eat right now. I'll get some real food later. That's right. Yep, that's right. I can miss this meal and know I'm fine. Even if my belly rumbles for a minute, it's going to pass in 10 minutes or whatever. You're going to get through it. And belly rumbling is only one part of hunger. You know, and the, the second part of hunger is the more extreme prolonged part, which is, am I actually now deficient in energy? So when someone's feeling hunger within a 24-hour period, that is not the body saying, hey, you're deficient in energy. That's the first step, which is, hey, there's nothing in my guts right now, and it's a little uncomfortable at the moment. That goes away. If it didn't, Anyone who's living through IV nutrition in a hospital, they'd be starving to death because they're not getting any nutrients in their gut. It's all directly put into their blood. And so they're getting fuel. And that's the fundamental part of hunger and and energy. Do I actually need to eat something? It's ask yourself, well, when was the last time I ate? All right, it was just four hours ago and it was a good nutritious meal. I am not actually needing energy at the moment. Right. We find that a lot of people equate hunger with actually what's happening is a hypoglycemic episode and it's that low blood sugar. And yeah, it's not, rebound. Mm-hmm, it's not really hunger. It's low blood sugar. And it, if they 
take a moment and look at maybe what they ate in the past meal, they might've had that blood sugar dysregulation and that's actually what's happening. It's not true hunger. No, that's right. That's a very good point that a lot of people can experience a brief uh, temporary period of a rebound hypoglycemia. Not that it gets their blood glucose levels to a clinical hypoglycemia, but their brain is so used to using glucose for fuel that as they eat that really, really starchy food and their glucose comes up and then it comes back down so much because they're a little insulin resistant, it goes a little too far. Uh That little moment, the body starts to panic. Yeah. And you get that. I mean, it used to happen to me. I would get the shaky feeling, that empty stomach feeling, almost nauseated. I remember it well, and I did not like those feelings at all. You get that lack of focus. Yep. It wasn't that I was starving. I had eaten breakfast like three hours prior. There was no need for energy. I had plenty on my body. I just was mistaking my blood sugar dysregulation for being hungry. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, we created a word for that. It's called hangry. Yeah, yeah that's right. that. <laughs> hangry. Yeah, I mean, that's, there's no more. The fact that that word has even come into being is proof positive that we are a carbohydrate addicted insulin resistant population because that is what happens exactly so would you maybe agree to come back and speak to us a little bit more at another time i would really like to get into your take on fasting because i've heard you mention some things about that and talk to you just a, a, a little bit more about some of these other topics yeah you bet you bet if, if the uh, if the if the audience appears to have enjoyed Ben Bickman being on, you guys let me know and I'll be glad to come back. Uh, well, we would we would really appreciate that. And we do absolutely appreciate your time today, taking time to go over all these things with us. And um, do you have any last words for our listeners? No, no, I don't. We've covered some great topics. Oh, great topics. Guys, I, yes, we I, appreciate, I appreciate the time. Man, I, I'm going to have to go and just digest all of this. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, until next time then, you guys, everyone, eat fat and prosper. Thanks for listening to the Tasco Kitchen. Hit subscribe and leave us a review. Don't forget to send your questions to btkquestions at gmail.com and visit our website, thetacticalkitchen.com.